Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 120 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another excellent interview episode where we sniff out the nicest smelling spirits and cocktail experts and ask them what kind of deodorant they're wearing. All right, okay, maybe that's not exactly how it goes, but this time around, we are graced with the presence of a bona fide aroma expert, Kevin Peterson of Castalia, a cocktail bar in Detroit that specializes in pairing drinks with natural fragrances to enhance and expand their guests' sensory experience of the cocktail. We cover a lot of fascinating ground in this conversation, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves... Let's clear our minds, and perhaps even our sinuses, with a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is The Man About Town. During the lightning round of this episode, I mistakenly assume that this Negroni riff includes an ingredient called Sfumato Rabarbaro, so I figured I'd go ahead and correct myself while also sharing this delicious recipe with you. To make The Man About Town, you'll need one ounce of rye whiskey, one ounce of chinar, which is an earthy artichoke-based Amaro, and one ounce of sweet vermouth. For this cocktail, I like a darker expression like puntemez. Combine these three boozy ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for 15 to 20 seconds until it's well chilled and properly diluted, and strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. For a garnish, really any citrus twist will do, and you do want some sort of citrus to brighten and lift this drink, but I'd try and tailor it to the rye and the vermouth you select, which, when you think about it, can really help you decide between orange, lemon, or even grapefruit. Probably the thing I enjoy most about the Man About Town cocktail is how it's almost as enjoyable to smell as it is to drink. You've got the polyphenols, vanillins, and other barrel-driven notes from the rye. You've got the grapey herbal notes from the vermouth, and the earthy, stemmy quality of the chinar all working together to create a cloud of flavor and aroma that really is greater than the sum of its parts. So next time you're at the liquor store, grab a bottle of chinar and impress your friends with this Negroni riff they've probably never heard of. Getting back to our interview with Kevin Peterson of Castalia, some of the topics we discuss include how Kevin and his wife Jane transformed the bottom level of an old mansion in Detroit into a scent shop by day that converts into an intimate 20-seat cocktail bar by night. Some of the differences between people who approach cocktails from a service industry background and those who come at the subject from a completely different area of specialization. What it's like to pair fragrances and cocktails, and how Kevin thinks about hacking the signal of the drink to give guests a truly memorable flavor experience. We also talk about lots of nerdy physiology stuff, including how the brain processes aroma, the difference between orthonasal and retronasal smell, and a whole lot of other things you probably didn't know about aroma and flavor. We talk about our favorite flavor and aroma books, we trade theories about the platonic ideal of baking spice, and we even find time to grab drinks with the man who changed the spaghetti sauce industry forever. This was definitely one of my favorite interviews in recent memory. If you're somebody in the industry, it's definitely going to leave you with some inspiration for how you can do your job better and continue pushing the envelope. And if you're a home enthusiast, I think it'll give you a really newfound appreciation for just how complicated and meaningful our fancy little drinks can be. And with that, please enjoy this stimulating, fragrant conversation with Kevin Peterson of Castalia Cocktails. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So can you just introduce yourself real quick here for our listeners and uh, tell us who you are and what you do? 
Sure. My name is Kevin Peterson. My wife, Jane Larson, and I own a fragrance company. We've got a shop in Detroit that turns into a cocktail bar at night. So we are really exploring the sort of overlap between fragrance and flavor. And yeah, in the in the craft cocktail scene and sort of trying to push the edge of how are cocktails perceived, how does scent a part of that, what uh, what is this experience all about? Awesome. Yes. Uh, so a little background for listeners. I actually uh, first heard about your cocktail concept uh, listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Cooking Issues with Dave Arnold. He said that he actually got to visit. And uh, I was immediately curious because aroma is obviously a very important part of flavor. So I kind of wanted to, to dig into that side of things a little bit. I know we're going to get into some of the specifics about uh, aroma science. I know we're probably going to get into the nitty gritty of how your bar concept works relative to the, the fragrance store. But, but I wanted to start with your kind of title that you choose when when you introduce yourself or in your email signature or what have you and with, and that is a cocktail scientist uh so why did you choose that as as your specific mon- moniker yeah uh good question i mean maybe at some level part of the reason i chose that is that i'm not that good of a bartender <laughs> if you need a hundred drinks cranked out really fast i'm probably not the guy so so my background is in physics and engineering. I've got degrees in both. I worked as a scientist studying combustion for about a decade and came to cocktails as, you know, first a hobby. I was in the culinary scene for a while, so it approached flavor from that direction and, you know, really never saw myself as sort of a traditional bartender, but rather I was looking for what are the patterns that define cocktails. What is what is an old-fashioned? What is a Manhattan? What is a daiquiri? What are the flavor inputs? How do our taste buds and olfactory receptors perceive them? And that's that's still how I think about it. You know, working, operating a bar. Yes, I am also a bartender, but really much of my thinking is more what is the science of a cocktail rather than just how to make the most amount of money from a cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting when you speak with people who have spent their, their life in the uh, cocktail bar service industry, and then you speak to somebody who kind of came to it as their second or third career. And I, I find that that the, the narratives tend to be very different and the focuses tend to be very different in that respect as well. So, you know, where somebody who has spent their life in, in the service industry might need a little bit of help on the technical and kind of like scientific physics and chemistry side of things. You know, I feel like people who come to it from a more technical or scientific background often, you know, are kind of, you know, intrigued by, by how things work at a high service bar or at a, um, you know, at a, at a service level of uh, where you have to actually break down a transaction between a bartender and a guest. So, that it's really fascinating to hear your story, and I, I love um, I love scientists. I find that many distillers I work with also come from like the science and engineering background as well. For sure, yeah, and I think as as scientists, maybe that human interaction was kind of the the thing I needed to to brush up on the most. And and yeah, moving behind the scenes to spirit production or something where you know the customer is not front and center all the time could be an interesting venue too, not to say that there's not customer service there as well, but yeah, thinking about what what's happening in the glass was where I originally focused, figuring out how that glass, you know, takes part as an interaction between bartender and guest was something that I really needed to figure out once once we got our space open. Sure, sure. So speaking of that space and speaking of the fact that like, you know, like, let's face it, the the fragrance industry is, is very sciencey, but fragrance and olfaction is just, it's such an intimate sensation. Um, so, so I'm curious how the vision for Castalia cocktails arose and what it was like to take it from a kind of a concept to a reality. Yeah, so... So kind of the the backstory is that my wife and I started. Well, I was I was originally in the culinary world in my early twenties and cooked, and then got into science after that. Never thought I would go back to 
um, the service industry 10 years later wound up back there. But uh, when I had left the culinary world, I started playing with fragrances as a hobby and always viewed uh, fragrance as an extension of flavor. So if you put coriander, cardamom, and nutmeg together in your chai tea or in your curry or in whatever dish, can that same basic combination also hold up as a fragrance? So, you know, I got into it as a hobby from that direction, but I always viewed it as an extension of flavor. And so I always kind of played with these different spice or herb combinations in the form of fragrance, in the form of food, and later in the form of cocktails. And my wife and I started doing these dinners where we would take a couple of fragrances and then create a food dish, a cocktail, and pick some music to pair to that and try to create a multi-sensory sort of everything harmonized experience. And as we, as the scent company was growing and we were starting to look for a space, we were hosting these dinners and kind of a friend of a friend came to one of them and approached us a couple weeks later and said, Oh, I've got this space. I own this Victorian mansion. We're thinking about building out the lower level. I think it'd be perfect for a weird little, maybe restaurant, maybe cocktail bar. We didn't really define it at that point, but, uh, well, I mean, first and foremost, scent shop, but maybe you could also double as one of these other things. And so as we got into the space, we kind of crunched the numbers. Okay. It's a little too small to make money as a cocktail bar. I don't know if the finances really justify building a scent shop, but if we put the two concepts together, now we've got something really interesting. Both businesses can support each other. You know, two businesses paying rent on one space is, of course, much more advantageous than one. So, yeah, it really grew out of some experiments combining flavor and fragrance. Gotcha, gotcha. And and is the name sort of a reference to that mansion, or is it is it a, re- a, a reference to something else? Yeah. So, Castalia is a fountain from Greek mythology, and when poets and artists would drink from it, they would be inspired to create their masterpieces. So that was that was one part of the inspiration, and then it's also referenced in a Herman Hesse novel <clears throat> called The Glass Bead Game, where people that are playing this game are trying to connect concepts in different realms. So you might try to connect a painting to a symphony to a chess game or something like that. And we thought it was very fitting the way we're trying to take these ideas that exist in scent form and translate them over to a cocktail form and see if they can hold up. So kind of a double meaning behind the name. Yeah. Okay. So I definitely want to return to the, the sense that, that we're talking about here. I want to, I want to get into like what, what, what's kind of the scent shop is like, but, but let's kind of explain how the bar concept works uh, first and foremost. So somebody comes in for a drink. Uh, what's the experience like? Do you have a menu? Uh, what, 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 how does it work? So the first thing that usually happens is they step in the door and they say, wow, it smells good in here. <laughs> I say, okay, well, we are vying for the title of best smelling bar in the world. So I'm glad you said that. Uh, so we, we do have a menu. The way the menu is set up is that we have eight all natural unisex fragrances, which are the main product line of the scent shop. And those are all laid out on the left side of the menu. And then whatever the sort of heart of the scent is, is what we use for the inspiration for the drink. So sometimes it's very literal. Um, this scent has rosemary, lavender, and grapefruit. We're going to have those notes in the cocktail as well. Sometimes it's a little bit more metaphorical. Uh, you know, this is this is a warm, heavy scent. Now it's a warm, heavy drink. But then, so the idea is, each thing that you order is a combined scent and cocktail pairing. Uh, we do both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, and then every drink is served as the cocktail, but then either the garnish, the napkin, something accompanying the drink has the scent sprayed on it. So really the kind of the big thing that we want people to experience is how does that external aroma affect the way you perceive the flavor? So we suggest you drink once, you know, holding the scent away from you, once again, sort of drinking and smelling together. And, you know, your brain is really trying to take all these different inputs, what's hitting your tongue, 
what's going up the back of your throat into your nose, your retronasal olfaction, what's coming in the front of your nose. And it's taken all of these different pieces to sort of tell you, okay, you're eating a ham sandwich, you're drinking an old fashioned, you're eating some potato chips. And so by sort of hacking that signal with this extra orthonasal scent, we're really enhancing and sort of shifting the way you perceive that flavor, which is the big, you know, kind of the heart of what we're doing at the bar. I love that phrase, hacking the signal, uh, just because you're, you know, you're right. Flavor is a fusion sense and aroma is, is a big part of flavor. And I, I think you just drew uh, a really important distinction that, that I'd like to kind of tease out for our listeners. Um, and that distinction was between orthonasal and retronasal olfaction, basically the way I understand it is that orthonasal is basically like when you when you sniff with your nose as as you might if you were trying to perceive uh, an aroma, just a pure aroma that that's orthonasal and retronasal, you know, is kind of that uh, the the route to the olfactory receptors kind of through the back of the throat, kind of up um, through sort of the back door, so to speak. And um, I just I I love the the concept of hacking the signal in light of orthonasal and retronasal smell because when we get a cocktail there's both orthonasal and retronasal going on at the same time and you're adding like this secondary orthonasal input in addition to it that is yeah it, it's it's like it could it could go really well or it could go really poorly <laughs> i imagine right yeah yeah it i would say Usually, it enhances the experience. Rarely do I say so. Hear someone say, "Oh, this got ten times worse when I smelled this smell." I mean, I like to think our smells are good smells, but yeah. Uh, so right, both both signals are happening when you're drinking a normal cocktail, but often they're sort of mirror images of each other. So whatever's coming in the front is exactly what's coming in the back, or very close to it. We're and and actually, so it's one set of receptors inside of your nose that's perceiving these uh, aroma molecules, but your brain can actually distinguish which way the air is flowing, and so interprets those flavor or interprets those signals slightly differently. One being like, okay, this is my environment. For orthonasal, retronasal is like, okay, I'm about to swallow this into my body. If I'm going to reject it, this is kind of my last chance so so yeah by by changing up the orthonasal scent your brain is kind of like oh what's going on now i got this extra level so yeah i think it just really enhances the overall um kind of signal being fed to the brain creating that flavor well right yeah and and so i i didn't know i didn't know the um the um i guess the directionality uh, distinction in this sense, but but one thing that I think is important to note when we're talking about aroma is that we are sensitive to kind of the density of the impulse. So we can we can smell if something is uh, faint, and we can smell if something is you know really strong. Like there's a couple aroma molecules floating around, or a, a, a bunch of them kind of floating around, and so I think that kind of also plays into it. Uh, you know, so when you take a sip of a cocktail, obviously there's a lot of those, you know, let's say it's a Manhattan, let's say, let's call them Manhattan aroma molecules floating around going up the retronasal side of things. But then, you know, you're pairing it with a garnish or something that is meant for strictly orthonasal consumption. And so you're getting almost these two kind of converging sets of impulses, both operating at different densities and in, or I guess I should say intensities and uh, yeah that just the, I want to I want to kind of press you on some of the pairings because we, we've talked kind of like at a high level about this but I feel like it'd be easiest for our listeners to understand if you could actually walk us through your thought processes in developing like one or two of your more popular uh, I guess pairings yeah yeah for sure so so the drink I started with before I had any idea that I would open a bar at any point in my life was the old fashioned. It's what my 
grandfather drank. It's, you know, I just liked the sound of it. Hey, it sounds like a classy drink. I think I'm going to get into these. And so, so originally before I was pairing them with sense, I was just sort of, well, coming from an engineering background, I had created this spreadsheet and was trying all these whiskeys, all these different sweeteners, different proportions, etc. And then as I started to get into sort of the what drives the flavor of an old-fashioned, a lot of that is, you know, different molecules from the barrel, from whatever grain is being used to create the whiskey. And I was intrigued that a lot of those molecules are not unique to whiskey, but also show up in a lot of, say, different botanicals that, uh, you know, culinary herbs, culinary spices. So some overlap with cloves, some overlap with nutmeg. And my favorite scent that we produce is called the Gravitas, which is based around coriander, cardamom, and nutmeg. And I started playing with adding tinctures to the old-fashioned to see if I could sort of enhance some different elements of the whiskey flavor. And so, you know, just started out with basically old-fashioned, uh, two ounces of whiskey, quarter ounces of simple syrup, and started adding these tinctures and then spraying the scent so that you've got now, say, baking spice notes in the whiskey, uh, enhanced with a tincture of baking spices and then baking spice aroma coming in orthonasally. And they're all sort of different shades of baking spice note, but they're all really fleshing out this very full concept, full spectrum of baking spice flavors. And what I kind of what I was going for was what is the what is the loudest, most intense sort of baking spice signal that I can send to the brain? And you know, I guess not just loudest, you know, you could stick a spoonful of cloves in your mouth and that wouldn't be pleasant. But, uh, you know, can I, what, what is the loudest signal that I can produce in a harmonious way and just bringing in baking spice from every different direction? So, so the ultimate drink, uh, is the old fashioned, the tincture of coriander, cardamom, and nutmeg, a scent strip sprayed with the gravitas fragrance, which features those baking spices and then the idea is to drink it while smelling the scent and have all those flavors coming in in multiple directions. Yeah, I really like that description. Uh, and, and you're right, because I was going to kind of call you out. Like, yeah, you could just get the the most intense baking spice by just, like you said, taking a spoonful of cloves. Uh, but the way that you were describing it almost made me picture sort of like a word cloud or a thought cloud or even a cloud of distinct different points or molecules all kind of building from different directions to create what we might call like the platonic ideal of baking spice perhaps <laughs> yeah it's a good uh it's a good name for a drink too <laughs> the platonic ideal. ideal of baking spice uh yeah so uh, the other thing that kind of occurred to me as you were describing that is that it, it just fits so well with how olfaction works. Uh, because when I teach um, spirits tasting classes, uh, I'll often go to distilleries here in the Mid-Atlantic, um, some of our partners. Uh, I'll, I'll teach a class there. And the way I like to talk about how flavor and particularly aroma is processed by the brain is that it kind of undergoes these kind of successive levels of refinement. You know, it starts off when these receptors are triggered, we have these electrical impulses that are kind of like the zeros and ones of what will eventually be that sensation. And then it goes up to a structure called the olfactory cortex, as I'm sure you know, and what happens there um, is it, it kind of takes those little zaps of you know, electrical impulses from the, the, um, the receptors and creates almost like a rough picture. And I always think of, of that picture. I always, I always imagine it kind of like a cloud, like you're kind of explaining right now. Yeah. Yeah. And in the literature, sometimes that is referred to as the flavor image. So, yeah, I mean, it's basically a 3d, uh, 
set of neurons that are excited. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, very good way to describe it. Have you ever uh, read a book called Neurogastronomy? I have. That Yeah, that's probably one of three of the most influential books on how the bar came to be. Yeah, I so we'll certainly link to that book in the show notes. Uh, you know, it was a very dense read at certain points, and <laughs> and and yet, and yet it was still like there was a, there was a narrative there because this guy spent I don't even remember the author's name offhand, um, but Gordon he, Shepherd. Yes, Gordon Shepherd. He spent his like a lot of his career kind of following the path that flavor takes through the brain. And as technology got better, you know, they were able to do more and more successful experiments. And, and I just, even though it was really dense, I came out of it just having my mind blown. So I would highly recommend that to anybody who has a basic literacy for sciencey or biological or psychological words. Uh, I think it's, I think it's worth cracking into. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy that book immensely. Like you say, it's, it's a little dry. But, uh, you know, a lot of times you read a book and if there's like one or two new ideas, you're like, wow, that was a good book. This book had like 20 new, like paradigm shifting ideas in it. And I was like, yeah, wow. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of the other, um, flavor pairings that, that you feature at the bar? And do you tend to, um, I guess, swap them out seasonally do you have like menu shifts or do you kind of phase individual items in and out how does how does that work yeah yeah so so we rotate our menu every season and one of the interesting challenges has been to say like let's just follow on that idea of the gravitas scent so baking spice forward so if on our first menu we did that as a spirit forward old-fashioned can we take that same flavor profile and make it into an egg white based cocktail or a sour style cocktail or a soda? And kind of my challenge to myself has been, can I take every scent profile and turn it into every category of drink? Like is, is that combination so universal that it can be any of eight or 10 styles of drink from a Negroni riff to a Manhattan riff to a, Collins something. And so we're now on our sixth menu, seventh menu, something like that. And, and yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that we've been able to sort of maintain these flavor profiles across different styles of drink. And, you know, as, as far as doing the pairings themselves, a lot of times what we're doing is looking for spirits that exhibit a very particular note. So, you know, so we don't really need 20 kinds of whiskey that are all subtle shadings of the same flavor profile. I mean, I enjoy whiskey personally and drink it, but it, it's not really the, the spirit of the bar. So we do a lot of gins. We do a lot of Amari. We do a lot of sort of weird liqueurs and um, trying to figure out where the overlap is between scent ingredients and flavor ingredients, and there is a lot of overlap, but both worlds can be a little bit opaque in the sense that a lot of Amaro manufacturers don't tell you which 127 herbs and spices they used. So you kind of have to just taste them and smell things and say, yeah, this feels like this scent to me, or it feels like it should work in a drink based on this scent. Um, so we, we do a, we start each shift with a, blind tasting one one of the staff members stays at the back bar the other people go out of the room we pour a couple spirits blindly and then you have to look smell taste figure out what the bottle is and all of that is designed to sort of train that scent and taste memory to say okay when i think of this scent and i want to work this into some sort of citrus forward cocktail you know what are what are the spirits that come to mind or what are the bottles that come to mind? Yeah. And, and scent is, is so tied to memory, uh, as I've heard it said that, uh, the olfactory cortex has kind of a direct line to 
some of the more emotional and like memory related structures in the brain. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, you want to train these people not only to be able to construct good cocktails, not only to understand the relationship between the ingredients and then the aroma kind of, um, extra signal, but, but also to be able to kind of work those into their paradigm of what the world is like as they're walking around and, and they're continuously taking in these sensations all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that tie between scent and memory is something I really enjoy and we really play with. And I mean, it's, it's very individual. So you're not born with a lot of sort of predispositions towards this scent or that scent. So especially when you're creating a cocktail, yeah, trying to take into account whatever scent history, scent memory your customer has can be very complex. But uh, the other thing that intrigues me about scent is the way that it's very difficult to capture in language. So you kind of have these direct you know, very literal descriptions. How does that orange smell? It smells orangey. It smells citrusy. Or you jump all the way to the metaphorical and say it smells open, fresh, like I'm walking through a field of something. But there's not really a lot of descriptors in between. So, so as you're as you're learning the trade, and you know what we're doing is a bit different from a lot of bars. So, so we do have some extra training, but. Yeah, a lot of what you have to do is develop your own personal scent memory, scent library, scent language, and say, okay, yeah, this one feels like a fresh breeze. This one feels like, you know, a stale closet. So if I'm trying to create a open, fresh, bright drink, I need to think back through my vocabulary of bottles and my vocabulary of scents and flavors and find those bottles that evoke that emotion. So, yeah, it's coming from a science background, it's a little bit hand wavy for my taste sometimes, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's, but it's also interesting in that the results are so immediately apparent. The customer likes it or they don't. So yeah, unlike a lot of scientific experiments, you get immediate feedback. Right. And you know, one other thing, uh, that, that kind of occurred to me, uh, revolving around those individual differences, is how some people are just extremely sensitive to certain flavors or aromas, whereas others uh, are, are a little bit less kind of sensitive. Uh, so, for example, uh, I can have two people, or maybe even more, I can have three or four people taste some of our more complex bitters, uh, like our lavender bitters or our liquid gold ancient trade bitters, for example, and one of them will say, all I taste is star anise. The other one will say, all I taste is, you know, soap. This lavender just tastes like soap. But then the next the person next to him will be like, oh, no, this is the best thing I've ever tasted and and, and on and on. And uh, so do, do you ever um, do you ever struggle with with that side of things, with the kind of client, um, the, the, the variation in mental not resources, but, but mental content that somebody walks into your store with, because you have no control over that, obviously. Right. Yeah. And, and some of that's, you know, physiological people, people have different sort of innate sensitivities to different molecules. And yeah, some, some things are very polarizing. Patchouli is very polarizing. The black licorice or fennel or star anise scent is very polarizing. Um, violet liquor, tends to be either soap or beautiful flowers, depending on who you ask. So, um, <laughs> yeah, how do you account for that? I mean, I guess, I guess the, the answer is you have multiple menu items. <laughs> yeah, right. Multiple menu items. And I think, you know, we, we try to call out those, those notes that we know are a little bit polarizing on the menu and, but yeah, beyond that, uh, yeah, you don't you don't get to choose who comes through the door. So, like you say, we, you know, I, I think one thing that I've come to appreciate running the bar that that I never foresaw being such a complication was the way that you write a menu. So, we had a drink on our 
actually on our current menu that we were describing as spirit forward, but that turned out to not be sufficiently a, a sufficient warning. You know, the, the drink was, or I mean, it is a little hot to get the hot as in spirit, like taste of alcohol forward um, to get the flavor that we wanted. Some customers love it. We were taking a lot of them back. We changed the menu to say intensely boozy and people still order the drink. We haven't taken any back since we made the menu change. Just subtle wordings in terms of linking the right person to the right drink. You know, that's that's partly the role of the menu, but more largely the role of the bartender. And And that's one of the nuances that I found fascinating was, yeah, you've got someone with these inbuilt um, – preferences and scent memories and cocktail memories and experience memories. How do you get them the right drink? You know, that's a fascinating and not trivial question. Right. Right. And, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking about like, as you were explaining that I was, I was thinking about, you know, another thing that I often talk about when, when it comes to memory and when it comes to, those rare experiences that, that I think you and I are, are both really interested in where someone walks up to a flavor or an aroma uh, and suddenly, you know, they'll, they'll turn to you and say, man, I, I, I do not like X, but this, this is really good. And, and what I like about that is that they have this you know, set of experiences. And I look at it almost as like a mathematical thing. Like if you've had 47 experiences with this flavor compound in your life, you've built a consensus with those 47 experiences that says like, absolutely not. That's like, a it's a hard no. And then all of a sudden number 48 can come along and all of a sudden, like the average is somehow no longer 48 divided by whatever it, right. it's somehow very different because you were able to get in there somehow uh and th that's that's what i'm continually interested in that's why i was so excited to talk to you because when i get those experiences those are the days that i go home feeling really fulfilled in what i do and so it's it's you know it's it's something that i'm i, I don't think i can identify perhaps a, a mechanism for it but uh, it is something i'm intensely interested in yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I mean, you know, it's always, well, something I see a lot of people do. You know, a customer comes in, oh, I don't like gin. Okay, of course, the bartender is going to try to sneak gin into your drink <laughs> to trick you into realizing that you like gin, actually. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of that has to do with sort of the larger context of the drink and even – even as we we had talked about earlier, this this flavor image, where maybe maybe it's a particular pixel that, okay, I've seen fifty pictures with this pixel in it, and I didn't like it, but now this pixel really complements these other things in this other image, and now I have to rethink my whole view of that pixel or that flavor compound. So, yeah, you know, I think maybe another thing that 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 plays to is sort of the importance of technique in the drink where, you know, the ingredients are part of the recipe, but how it's shaken, how it's stirred, how it's presented, what it's presented along with, you know, that can really have a huge influence on the perception of that drink and yeah, can shift it from a mediocre or negative experience to a positive experience. Yeah, for sure. So I've got one more question for you about kind of the future of, you know, bars and, and what, what we can what we can maybe learn from what you're doing and apply it to, you know, the, the future of awesome cocktail experiences. But um, I did have one last question that kind of arose as you were explaining the importance of technique. And that is like, how do you in a in a space like yours that appears to be not super big? Um, comfortable, but not like, not like huge. Yeah, seen about you... Okay. So how, how do you, in a, in a setting where you're seating about 20 people control for like bleed over in the aromas? Because in my experience, like I grew up in Western Massachusetts 
and that is the home of Yankee Candle. And you just walk into that place, and ten minutes later, I'm running out with a headache. Uh, so, so how how do you do it? Yeah. So, so a little bit of that was in the in the design. So we did purchase a high turnover HVAC system and sort of did some infrastructure things to help alleviate that. Uh, one of the big advantages, which, you know, coming into it, I wasn't sure how this was going to play out, but for one thing, every, every compound that we use is derived from a natural source. So synthetic aroma molecules tend to be much more potent, much more intense, just based on anecdotal experience, seem to be more likely to lead to headaches and sort of intense reactions. I don't know that I've seen any scientific study backing that up, but uh, just my um, personal experience. And I think a lot of natural sources tend to sort of have some molecular overlap. So, you know, the same aroma compound in pine is also in rosemary is also in a lot of sort of herbaceous uh, flavors and, and scents. And I think at some subtle level, a lot of the naturals tend to sort of overlap and mesh with each other. So, so I was really worried that either staff, if we're spending six, eight hours a day smelling the smells, um, you know, or, or even customers would be overwhelmed with the scent. And frankly, I don't know if I can tell you exactly why it's not an issue, but we've been open coming up on two years now. And, uh, you know, I've had maybe two or three people that said, okay, the scent's too overpowering, but you know, two or three out of, I don't know, a few thousand, 10,000 at this point. So, um, yeah, somehow, I mean, there is definitely a scent background. When you walk through the door, you experience that. But within a couple of minutes of being in the space, that is, you know, it kind of subsides. You habituate to the scent. And then the way we present the, the aromas with the drinks is on a scent strip or sort of on on something that you have control over. So you can decide how close you want to bring that and how much scent you want to get, which again, there's, there's not a lot of availability to turn off the scent of the person next door, but it, I guess it's sufficiently localized that the effect is still, um, still there. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. And, you know, I'll be honest, uh, when my colleagues and I are in the kitchen making bitters and we're sitting there peeling, you know, cases and cases of organic oranges or we're working with the organic lavender, you know, people will walk in and be like, wow, it smells amazing in here. And we're like, uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It does. I get it now. Because it kind of, you know, when, when you're sitting with it, it, you know, it kind of fades into the background unless you are specifically attending to it. Um, so that makes sense. All right, let's let's talk. Let's kind of wrap up this discussion uh, with your thoughts. Uh, since you're in the business of doing interesting and kind of innovative things with flavor and with the way that a cocktail service relationship proceeds, um, do you have any ideas about you know where we can go from here? Is, is, are there other interesting things that can be done with aroma? in the cocktail setting? Uh, are there any, anything you've been kind of pondering or, you know, thinking about pursuing in that space? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, two, two big directions I've been wanting to explore. One goes by various names, but kind of, uh, gastrophysics or read a couple, couple books in this area, like either in dining or in cocktails, how much of the experience is what's in the glass or what's on the plate and how much of it is the lighting, the service, the music, the, um, you know, the, the visual decor. And so I think, I think a lot of people understand that at a very intuitive level, but I don't know that there's a lot of real scientific knowledge behind what music pairs best with, an old fashioned versus a daiquiri. So, so that's an area that's of a lot of interest to me. And I think, 
maybe even going a step further with our neurogastronomy discussion, I would be fascinated to figure out how do we measure how much someone is enjoying a cocktail? Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I measure it in a sense. Hey, how do you like your drink? Oh, it's great. Well, okay. You know, or you kind of have these secondary or like proxy measures. Okay, this person keeps coming back to my bar. They must like it. I would be fascinated to see if there are biomarkers. Can we measure pupil dilation, skin conductance, EEG signal, and see, yeah, this is blowing this person's mind right now. This is the best drink they've ever had. You know, I I think that's probably a little bit more on the science fiction end at this moment. But yeah, that's that's kind of a personal uh, personal project of mine is sort of reading about the neuroscience and figuring out if there are ways to even further enhance cocktails using actual feedback from what the brain and the body are doing and not just sort of verbal uh, verbal response. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting because that goes back to something you were saying earlier where there's like not too much in between extre- something extremely precise like the, the chemical eugenol, for example, and something that's like really hand-wavy, which is like, oh, smells like Christmas. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's in your responses kind of what I'm perceiving is like, all right, if we're going to get to a better functional understanding of these things, somebody like me needs to you know, dig into the scientific literature where I can actually, you know, make some progress in understanding this stuff. And then, you know, hopefully what that allows us to do is, you know, in that middle space, in the execution space, where it's a transaction between two people who need to figure out a bunch of stuff about each other rather quickly to make it a successful transaction, we can actually boil that down into a set of best practices that are based on something rather than based on just a set of assumptions that that may or may not be true. Right, right. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And even, yeah, you can't explain what eugenol is to everybody that comes through the door. So you got to have a, yeah. A menu, a couple words exchanged, two, three sentences, like that's kind of what you have to decide what uh, what that person wants to drink. So, yeah, the uh, figuring it out, but then condensing it into an executable form is really the challenge. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Kevin, what I'd like to do is, is I'll follow up with you uh, after we after we get off the air here, and I definitely want to make sure that on our show notes page we get you know links to your website, um, maybe even some examples of your menu, so that they can kind of you know see how you're pairing these cocktails with the aromas, and then sure. also be able to you know examine. The, you know, the, the way you actually present the cocktail. I love the anecdote about the, you know, uh, spirit forward to ex- intensely boozy type deal. So, it, you know, I, I just want to give people some resources to, to click around to. And um, then uh, before we jump off, we'll we'll give them uh, all of the details about where to find you. But uh, for now, uh, how about we do a couple of quick lightning round questions? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Favorite cocktail, and if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's something you've been recently obsessed with? I love the Boulevardier. So whiskey, Campari, sweet vermouth. It's If I'm going to make riffs on a drink, you can just swap out any of those portions for something else similar, and you've got a million variations. If I go to a place and I don't trust the bartender or the menu, at least I say equal parts, these three, good to go. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great one. Uh, have you ever, so the, the name of the fragrance shop of course is called Sfumato, right? Yes. Have you ever played around with uh, Sfumato Rubabaro? Oh, of course. Yeah. I love that yeah. in uh Boulevardier. I believe, I think there's a name for it. I'm not quite sure if it's the old pal or the man about town or something like that, but I, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. It's got very earthy, like distinct flavor. Yeah. Big fan of the Boulevardier. Uh, so if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Oh, hmm. I think I might be wormwood for my neurotoxic uh, content. <laughs> um, have you ever, so and wormwood, bitters. yes, 
facet a probably one of the coolest answers we've gotten for this so far um have you ever have you played around with uh like different types of wormwood or different like uh extractions or tinctures of it yeah yeah definitely definitely played with the tincture i've we've got a really cool herb and tea shop here in detroit so i always go in there and just buy weird bags of all these herbs and roots and barks so yeah Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll we'll have an absinthe episode soon. So more to come on Wormwood. Nice. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Oh, I think I would drink a cocktail with Howard Muscovitz. So he is a food scientist uh psychophysicist so he did a famous study about spaghetti sauce and discovered that like the the whole of the american population fell into a couple distinct spaghetti sauce preferences and i found that really fascinating and i think it has a lot of applications to the cocktail world where um you know some people are old-fashioned drinkers some people are collins drinkers and you know, I'd really like to pick his brain further on on how his findings could be applied to cocktails. I think I would want to drink at Existing Conditions, which is Dave Arnold's bar in uh, Manhattan. And Dave's book, Liquid Intelligence, was really the jumping off point for me into the science of cocktails and just linking linking two worlds that I thought were distinct. I study science by day. I go home and drink cocktails. And realizing that they were actually one and the same was mind-blowing. Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, I believe uh, the Howard Muscovitz was – there's a, a popular account of the, the story that you're talking about from Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure if it's a TED Talk or if it's him reading uh, from one of his books, but I will be sure to link to that in the show notes if people are curious about that uh, spaghetti sauce study because it does – it does really relate to some of the things that we were talking about, you know, especially goes back to like the, you know, the way we present things to people. Um, it's very, very fascinating. Um, yeah. It, are there any books, you know, so we've listed neurogastronomy, we've listed liquid intelligence. Uh, are there any books about cocktails or kind of on the other hand, aroma that have been really influential or enjoyable for you? Yeah. So, so if I had to pick three books that the bar was basically founded on, Neurogastronomy and Liquid Intelligence, as we already mentioned, and then one called Essence and Alchemy by an author named Mandy Aftel. And that was that was the jumping out point for me into the fragrance world. So starting in the late 1800s, early 1900s, synthetic aroma molecules started to be mass produced. They're very potent. They can be very cheap compared to natural sources. And they really took over the aroma world and are still, you know, the omnipresent component of most of the fragrance world. Mandy Aftel is a perfumer in California that really started to bring back the natural approach to perfumery. And this book, Essence and Alchemy, is an exploration of the history, an overview of the ingredients, some tips about how to make scents. So, you know, that was a that was the first book that I read about aroma and one that I still revisit and find new ideas in, you know, a decade or more later. So yeah, kind of that trilogy, essence and alchemy, liquid intelligence, neurogastronomy. Also all just fantastic titles. Not a, not a bad one in there. <laughs> right. Uh, so we'll link to all of those publications over at the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. You can search for this episode and um, wrapping things up here, if you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's just starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails or fragrances or how those things work together, what, what would you tell them? My suggestion would be to pick one drink and explore many variations. So it's actually the same advice I got when I was learning to play chess. I thought I had to learn 55 different openings and master them all. And my teacher was like, you really just need one, maybe two if you're going to play in turn tournaments. And I think, yeah, find, find a drink that you're naturally drawn to. And then, yeah, swap, 
the lemon for orange, swap the lemon for lime, swap honey sweetener for the simple syrup. And I think by going deep into one cocktail is really how you start to understand what these different nuances bring to the drink. Yeah, I think that ties in really well with the mission and the execution of, of uh, Castalia. And, you know, it really does kind of bring us full circle because, you know, one of the ways to explain what you're trying to evoke in people is the sensation of the uncanny that somehow then becomes through processing, through the overall experience, no longer uncanny. And instead of, uh, instead of being like a, a strange or somewhat foreign riff on a familiar experience, it kind of widens your understanding of what the experience can really be. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, that's exactly what happens when you play around with those various riffs on an individual cocktail is you're, you're widening, you're widening the ring. And then as you go out and, you know, explore with other cocktails in the same way, it's kind of, you know, like zooming out and seeing where all those ripples in the pond intersect and how they affect one another. So I, th I think it really is uh, a great kind of encapsulation of, of what you do and um, how it can be successful and, and really life-changing, to be honest. Yeah, I thought I was going to retire as a corporate scientist and now I own a bar. There you go. Uh, Kevin, how can people find the bar physically uh, to, to be able to visit you? Uh, and, and like if there's any uh, salient information about reservation styles. And then how can they contact you digitally to learn more um, or even to, you know, perhaps purchase your fragr fragrances? Yeah, absolutely. So... My bar is in the lower level of an old Victorian mansion. It is in Detroit in a neighborhood called Midtown. So corner of 2nd and Alexandrine, go down the fancy metal stairs, and we're in there. Uh, we do a call-ahead wait list, so numbers on the website. And then the, the scent company and the bar are different names and different websites, partly for legal reasons. So you don't want drinking and stupidity to overlap into fragrance and stupidity if uh, if you can help it so right. the scent company is sfumato fragrances s-f-u-m-a-t-o and the cocktail side is castaliacocktails.com c-a-s-t-a-l-i-a both contact forms on those websites go right to my inbox and our phone number 313-305-1442 is on the website and uh yeah, that's that's how to get a hold of us. Beautiful. Well, Kevin, man, this has been exceptional. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of things I'm going to go away and think about. I I don't have any trips planned to Detroit, but you can certainly uh, you can certainly bet that if I do, uh, you're going to be the first stop on my list. Um, and uh, if you're ever in DC, uh, please do please do come and hit me up, and we can. Um, come take you around and, and uh, check yeah. out some of the cool places yeah. here. Been, been meaning to check out the scene out there for a minute. So, yeah, it's a good, uh, good catalyst to make that happen. Well, Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. 
Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed and Maddie Haynes pungent flavor and aroma insights courtesy of Kevin Peterson, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.